This is Floss Weekly. I'm Doc Searles. This week, Catherine Druckmann and I talked to Andy Parsons of the Content Authenticity Initiative. He works for Adobe, but that's his thing, is content authenticity. It is a much bigger topic than I ever thought it was. If it works, all the websites you see can be trusted not to have misinformation in them if all the right things happen. And I think there's actually a fair chance that that will happen. So I'm very enthused about this one, and that is coming up next. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This This is Twit. This is Floss Weekly, episode 699, recorded Wednesday, September 21st, 2022. Content authenticity. This episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by IRL, an original podcast from Mozilla. IRL is a show for people who build AI and people who develop tech policies, hosted by Bridget Todd. This season of IRL looks at AI in real life. Search for IRL in your podcast player. And by Bitwarden, get the password manager that offers a robust and cost-effective solution that can drastically increase your chances of staying safe online. Get started with a free trial of a Teams or Enterprise plan, or get started for free across all devices as an individual user at bitwarden.com slash twit. And by Compiler, an original podcast from Red Hat devoted to simplifying tech topics and providing insight for a new generation of IT professionals. Listen to Compiler in your favorite podcast player. Hello again, everybody, everywhere in the world. I am Doc Searles. This is Floss Weekly, and I am joined this week by Catherine Druckmann herself, who should appear on those who are not visually impaired. Shows that look good. Thanks, Welcome. but I am yeah, one, the one and only, I, I hope. <laughs> you're still, in, you're still in, in Houston. I'm still in Bloomington, Indiana. We're only I one am. time zone apart. Um, so so our, our, our guest this morning, Andy Parsons, he, he came at your recommendation, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think that was somebody else. <laughs> somebody else can claim credit for that. But I am excited because uh, I'm interested in the technology that he's working on. I'm interested in provenance in general, and and I think this is a great, going to be a really great uh, conversation. Yeah, so, I've had a while. I cannot claim credit. I am excited. Yeah, yeah, with with other people about authentic data and uh, uh, and provenance, which I've heard pronounced both provenance, the French, or provenance, the English. I suppose the Italian provenance. Yeah, I, I always think provenance <laughs> because I, I come from uh, my my art history education. That that's where uh, that's oh, coming from. So I think in terms qualified. of art, provenance and that sort of really? thing. Really, wow. That's my primary uh, association with that word. Yeah, but uh, that's changing. <laughs> yeah, well, it, as we talk about the problem with English, it's full of optionalities. Word. Yeah, it's made up yep. of other languages and full of that. So um, uh, I I don't want to delay any further because I I really want to get. Uh, Get going on the show. So our, our guest this morning is is Andy Parsons. Um, uh, he's the senior director of Adobe's Content Authenticity Initiative. It's creating open technologies for a future of verifiably authentic content of all kinds. Um, I'm skipping. It's a long one. Throughout his career, uh, he's worked to empower creative professionals. He's a big believer in the power of community. Uh, he ran the Closure Meetup at NYC and organized the New York CTO Club. Uh, he founded WorkFrame. Um, I rather like his website, though. I'm looking for, I'm looking to find it here. Uh, yeah, because it says he's a uh, he's a saxophonist, husband and dad, lives in Brooklyn, uh, also an aspire barbecue, aspiring barbecue pitmaster, cyclist, and wannabe whiskey distiller. So with all of those out of the way, welcome to the show, Andy. Thank you, Dr. There Captain. He is. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> pleasure to be That's here. That's great. So, so um, I have to let on that I am a... Um, I'm a lapsed Brooklyn Dodgers fan because that's how old I am. Um, so I never forgave them uh, for, for leaving Brooklyn. <laughs> well, don't are, hold are it against life- me today, Doc. Yeah. Are, are you lifelong or are you, are you a Brooklyn person or you just moved there? Or uh, I consider myself a New Yorker. Yeah, I, I, I grew up in Connecticut. I've lived all over the place, but I've been in Brooklyn for 20 plus years. So I, I think oh, I've no, got the mantle of New York. does it. Yeah. Yeah. You and the accent's gone, or you could call yourself a New Yorker now. I, I grew up across the river in New Jersey. So, you know, nice. that's, 
Connecticut's nicer. <laughs> it's, it's a better adjacent state. So, so, so tell us about content authenticity and because suddenly, I don't know if it's your work or somebody's work, but it's suddenly turning into a topic. Yeah, I hope it's our work, but I, I, I will concede that there's a lot of uh, interest around the topic of, you know, verifiable media integrity or Provenance, I say provenance. Um, I love that you guys started mm -hmm. out by uh, <laughs> debating the pronunciation of the word. Something that comes up all the time. I think historically, Catherine's exactly right. It does come from the art world, and it it has broad applicability to what we do in the digital realm. Um, but it's sort of an esoteric SAT word. So if you guys have suggestions for a better one, I, I am all ears. But for now, it's provenance with my Brooklyn accent. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of interest in, the, in this area for a number of reasons, and that we're sort of living at the nexus of, you know, I think over the past several years and frankly, decades and centuries, misinformation, the inadvertent sharing of, of information that's untrue or misleading and malicious disinformation, which we see more and more of around elections and wars in the world. Um, and then the arrival of like incredibly powerful, you know, week over week, day over day, we see more power coming from the realms of synthetic media and generative media. Um, those things have all, you know, kind of become conflated. And I think there's urgency around finding solutions to this problem. And it's, it's probably unlikely to be detecting fake media or manipulated media. And instead it's a matter of focusing our attention on uh, provenance, which is proving truth about how things were made and where it makes sense, who made them and who gets attribution and those kinds of things. So that's what we've been focused on, DocuRight. There's a ton of attention from a lot of uh, industry sectors to to address the problem. Um, and, you know, effectively what we're doing at the Content Authenticity Initiative is exactly that. We're doing it through open source, through open standards in the Linux Foundation, um, and through uh, Adobe tools, so everything in the Creative Cloud that will be outfitted with the technologies we'll talk about today. Um but, you know, historically, this was started in late 2019. It was announced at Adobe Max, which is Adobe's big creator uh, ecosystem conference. I think that was the last pre-COVID uh, convening. The, the last two years have been um, remote. Uh, and then in 2020, I joined Adobe to basically lead this initiative. And the the kind of founding concepts were, as I said, like, let's, let's see if we can prove what's true about media, about how it's produced, about who produced it, about who gets credit for it. Um, and turn our attention away from uh, synthetic media or deep fake detection, because that's probably a, an arms race that the good guys are going to lose. Um, and then that has blossomed into a number of efforts, which hopefully we'll get into. One is uh, an organization outside of Adobe called the C2PA. That's a JDF project in the Linux Foundation where standards are being created. Um, there's a big open source effort that my team is working on, and we're beginning to get pull requests and um, kind of building a, an early but active, engaged community around making this stuff uh, accessible and easy to implement. Um, and, you know, I have, I've said everything about the initiative except what it is. You know, the, the idea is to capture verifiable um, facts, if you will. All these words around truth and trust and facts are fraught terms. Uh, again, the limits of the English language, perhaps. Um, but the idea is to capture verifiable information uh, about how something was made, about what ingredients comprise it, um, and even things like perhaps, you know, what... ML training data or model was used to produce something. Um, so we're very interested in that. Obviously, Adobe, you know, powers uh, a lot of creativity in the world. Our, our tools are used on everything from restaurant menus and PDFs and signatures and, of course, Photoshop and Premiere and, and tools of creation. So we're very interested in a solution that gives creators credit for their work, but also addresses the kind of scourge of, of disinfo. So a little bit of a rambly intro, but I hope that gives you a, a sense of what we're up to. Well, that was great. Um, I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit more about how it works and, and if you could kind of segue also into why open source? I mean, how, how did this end up becoming an open source project? I think that's obviously something our listeners want to hear about being Floss Weekly. But uh, how did this how did this come about and, and how did Adobe get involved? Yeah, so the the. CAI, or the Content Authenticity Initiative, was started by us, um, got underway in 2020. And again, it was it was it recognized two important things, which culminated in the open source work that we released um, just a couple months ago in June. And those realizations were, you know, this is a long-term problem. It's been with us since the days of Stalin, manipulating photography and removing his enemies from photos and, and probably long before that. 
Um, and, you know, we felt that Adobe has a, an important role to play and a responsibility given that so much of the world's creative content goes through Adobe tools. Um, secondly, that it couldn't be an Adobe only solution. That would be, you know, extremely foolish. Um, leadership at our company knew that early on and said, look, we need to, we need to build an industry consortium, maybe a standard, you know, at that time at initiation and make this, um, something that can involve the interests of everybody from social media to the entire news ecosystem broadcast to Adobe tools, Adobe competitors. Um, and you can see where this is going. It therefore needs to be open. Any spec that is created should not be under the umbrella of Adobe or Microsoft or the BBC or any particular member, but rather um, in an open ecosystem, in a nonprofit. We found a very comfortable warm home, warm home in the Linux Foundation, of course. And then ultimately, um, you know, we wanted to empower engineers building provenance solutions into their tools. And ideally, you know, what's better than a capitalistic motivation to build a startup and raise money and make money? Um, we wanted to make it easy for them to um, pull in provenance technologies. Um, you know, why use Adobe open source? It's the very same code that's running in Photoshop and other creative cloud tools. And, um, you know, in the interest of adoption, to answer your question directly, Catherine, um, you know, nothing spurs adoption than free, you know, uh, permissive licensing. Um, and that, that's why we took this approach. So I've, boy, I have a whole bunch of questions queued up here, but I, while I'm juggling tabs on my desktop, I have to let people know first that this episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by IRL, an original podcast from Mozilla. IRL is a show for people who build AI and people who develop tech policies. It's hosted by Bridget Todd, and this season IRL looks at AI in real life. Who can AI help? Who can it harm? The show features... Fascinating conversations with people who are working to build more trustworthy AI. For example, there's an episode about how our world is mapped with AI. The data missing from those maps tells as much of a story as the maps themselves. You hear all about the people who are working to fill those gaps and take control of the data. There's another episode about gig workers who depend on apps for their livelihood. It looks at how they're pushing back against algorithms that control how much they get paid and seeking new ways to gain power over data to create better working conditions. For political junkies, there are episodes about the role that AI plays when it comes to the spread of misinformation and hate speech around elections, a huge concern for democracies around the world. Uh, the latest episode I listened to this morning um, opens actually with a sad story about a guy who's lost his wife from misdiagnosis because of a melanoma, because all of the existing expertise on this in terms of pictures was of lightly complected people. Um, his wife is African-American and... Uh, she died. It's really bad, but he's taken control of that thing and filling AI with much better information, much better pictures, kind of an open source angle to it as well. So I highly recommend going and checking that out. So search for IRL in your podcast player. We'll include a link in the show notes. My thanks to IRL for their support. Okay, so uh, Andy, you mentioned... The Linux Foundation. It seems like we run into the Linux Foundation everywhere <laughs> and they jump ahead of everything. <laughs> so what is the connection there with the Linux Foundation? I mean, the, the other day, for example, they, they announced an intent to form a foundation around something, not this particular thing. But I'm wondering what, what that connection is. Yeah. So, you know, I think what we wanted to avoid in the early days of opening this and making it, again, outside the umbrella of any particular company or contributor was... Um, things like the intent to form a proxy for a decision that might be made in the future. We wanted to avoid that kind of thing. Um, and within the Linux Foundation is housed a, a project structure called the JDF, so Joint Development Foundation. Um, I think probably the most well-known, besides our project, uh, selfishly, the most well-known um, JDF project is probably the Alliance for Open Media that focuses on video codecs and other things. Um, and it's, you know, it's effectively a just add water sort of um, way to found uh, standards development organizations. So rather than, than, you know, reinventing the wheel, inventing an IP policy or adopting one involving armies of attorneys to set up a nonprofit, um, you can go to the Linux Foundation and the folks who run the JDF in particular and say, we want to form a standards development organization. Uh, we want extremely permissive W3C compatible licensing um, and you choose from their kind of menu of options for forming the, the organization, and then you're ready to go. So rather than, you know, months or 
you know, multiple months of setting up the organization within a couple of weeks, we were ready to convene and begin and, you know, read the IP policy to participants. So um, I don't know of anything else. I'm not a, a standards historian by any means, but I don't know of anything else that makes bootstrapping an organization so straightforward. And again, you know, feeling the urgency that we all felt in forming this thing, we didn't want to um, kind of focus our energies on the setup, but rather forming the task forces and the technical working group and starting to get some standards down on paper. Um, so the Linux Foundation was the exact right home for this. <laughs> trying to hand I, the ball um, to Catherine. <laughs> sorry. I, yeah. So I'm, I'm actually looking at the, that the tools themselves and, and I think, you know, our, uh, our listeners would be anxious to, to hear a little bit of an explanation about each of the, the open source tools that you provide. Um, you know, if you go to contentauthenticity.org, um, I noticed you have a JavaScript SDK. There's a command line tool, a Rust SDK. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Why Rust? I thought that was a that was an interesting choice, yeah. and and you mentioned it actually in our pre-show notes. I thought maybe uh, I'd like to hear yeah. about that actually. Definitely. Let me rewind a little bit, Catherine. Answer a question you left hanging that he didn't answer, which is how does this work? And then I think from yeah, that, yes, we can. Um, you know, it'll be clearer why we created these three tools and even why Rust. So, you know, as I described, the idea behind provenance is to capture verifiable information when an asset is made. Um, so imagine in a Photoshop workflow or any you know, video editing workflow, you bring in lots of what we call ingredients, you mix them together, and then you export a final master or a final JPEG or a, a ping or what have you. Um, and the idea is you, you effectively develop a graph of the contributors to that content and you know what tools were used. Now, I should um, make it clear, all this is opt-in. This is not intended or or in fact there are countermeasures to make sure this can't be used for surveillance identity isn't required in fact the minimal claim that is made in one of these cryptographically signed um, manifests as we call them is just a timestamp maybe a thumbnail of what the media looked like before and, uh, and so you can compare it with the after but the idea is like you know to capture everything that a, a creator or a photographer or a news organization wants about how the thing was made so for example, there's a, a kind of a broad spectrum of use. One would be, um, let's say, a, a creator using Adobe tools or other tools who's minting NFTs or trying to monetize their work in, in some other way. You want to get credit for your work. Um, doesn't mean you can't have pseudonymous ID, and we can get much more deeply into uh, ID. I know that's been a topic on other shows. Um, identity, specifically. Um, you can get credit for your work, but you can be Banksy. You can be Andy Parsons or Doc Searles. Um, and you want to attach your identity in some form or another to the media itself. The other end of the spectrum is maybe you're a conflict photojournalist. And, you know, the, the worst thing for your personal safety would be to reveal anything about GPS coordinates or the device you're using or, of course, your actual identity. Um, and therefore, just a timestamp is, is required there. But that conflict photojournalist might want to show what edits were made in, a, in an editing tool to make sure that that work conforms, for example, to AP or New York Times standards for information integrity. And we can exist anywhere on that spectrum from purely focusing on identity and um, uh, attribution all the way to, you know, transparency about what something is and how it was made and making sure that a police car wasn't added or removed from a photo or video. So these tools allow us to do all of those things. Um, and the trust model is based on a digital signature. I, I um, I listened to one of the episodes you did with Dave Hughesby, who pointed out that, you know, X509 digital signatures have been around for many decades, proven. Um, we need not necessarily look at blockchains and new ways to create digital signatures um, and proofs. And why not use a decades old hardened proven technology? So we effectively create a digital signature, which, of course, Adobe has quite a lot of experience with. Uh, we sign and bind the manifest, which contains all those facts I, I described, to the media itself. So that it, it inextricably travels wherever that media may go. Um, and that's the idea behind the, the CAI and the C2PA standard. It addresses that for a number of file types. It even covers streaming. And in the future, I think it will also address um, live streaming. Uh, so broadcast and video calls where you might have somebody for good or, or deleterious purposes, you know, appearing to be someone that they are not, whether it's a cartoon character or a politician, you know, there's a lot of relevance uh, for provenance to those kinds of situations as well. So, you know, turning to the open source tools, um, 
And the spec, by the way, is open, free. There's no IP. It's, it's available to anybody. Um, you know, most of us wouldn't want to read a, a, a deep technical spec, um, just like we would like to grab open SSL and not read all the SSL RFCs. So we hope that the Adobe open source will be, you know, one of a, a constellation of open source tools that make it very straightforward to do this. And as you pointed out, it comes in three flavors. Um, one is a JavaScript SDK that lets you effectively drop a few lines of JavaScript on a web page or into a, a web-based mobile app. Um, and any images or soon videos that come through in that context that have provenance data will display it. Um, you're showing the an example there, perfect timing. So that little eye icon um, represents the presence of C2PA provenance data. And you can click on it and reveal a high-level summary of, in this case, we're showing what ingredients were mixed in, who's getting credit for this, who's signing for it. Could be an organization, could be a synonymous ID, it could be Andy Parsons. Um, and then we can learn a little bit about what, what comprises that particular asset. So that's what the JavaScript SDK does. It allows you to do this in any web-based uh, application of any kind. Um, there is a thing called the C2PA tool, which is a command line app that could be shelled out to from a service. We have folks doing that. In fact, Adobe Stock takes this approach. So I think um, some number of hundreds of thousands of Adobe Stock assets go through this process every day as, as they're downloaded. And we have sort of a last mile provenance edition that uses that tool. Um, but you and your, your listeners might also be familiar with something called Exif Tool, um, which is an open source project uh, made by a gentleman named Phil Harvey, who many of us in the photo ecosystem, Phil is a, a hero in the open source ecosystem. Um, Exif Tool is pretty much, you know, the clearinghouse tool for anything you want to do with Exif data or image metadata in general. Um, and we'd like to see C2PA Tool or something like it be that for digital um, cryptographic provenance. So it does all the things like show you, um, you know, different kinds of disclosure about what data has been signed into the asset. Um, it will allow you to create um, test certificates so you can play around with making your own cryptographically signed uh, C2PA metadata um, and everything in between so via the command line. Um, and then the third offering is, you know, in the interest of convenience, the C2PA tool and the JavaScript SDK um, are kind of purpose-built for specific uh, scenarios. For example, the JavaScript SDK has some UI built into it. You can skin it and add CSS any way you want, but it's it's basically meant to replicate a, a UI like we just saw a moment ago. Um, and the lower-level SDK uh, allows you to do whatever you like. So it does all the heavy lifting. It implements kind of the tricky parts of the spec, which involve things like um, CBOR, uh a variety of cryptographic signature types um, that are all implemented. So it's very straightforward to bring that into your app, to link it in. Uh, and this is where Rust comes in handy. And that we've seen that work and um, proven that it's pretty facile in iOS, on Android, um, really any kind of language binding you would like to create. And, you know, largely thanks to Mozilla, of course, originators of the Rust language itself, but also there continues to be this rich ecosystem of tooling um, from Mozilla and now with lots of other contributors to make bindings to other languages really straightforward. So, you know, in short, why Rust? If you take something that um, has, you know, really deep uh, memory protections without garbage collection, which isn't portable across platforms and probably not viable on cameras and mobile devices, and then you connect that to bindings for any language you might be using, be it Python or C or C++ um, or Swift, um, you have this really interesting tool set uh, that runs fast, that has, you know, uh, memory safety, um, like many other statically compiled languages, uh, but without the dangers, of course, of something like C or C++, and a very small distributable binary, distributable binary or library. So it, it offers a tremendous amount of flexibility, I would say. In my experience, and, and this is mostly me proxying for my team who writes Rust code every day, um, there's a learning curve, but it it pays off in orders of magnitude of productivity um, and lack of bugs. So we're very pleased with Rust. It's sort of um, Adobe's exploring Rust in other areas. Uh, there are many large companies who are taking advantage of Rust, and uh, I, I just couldn't be more pleased with our personal experience using it for this project. That's 
that's a lot. Of, there, there's a lot of great info in there. Um, well, there's always a learning curve, isn't there? But um, I'm wondering specifically, uh, you know, you mentioned the developer experience. I wonder about adoption. I actually wonder about adoption from the the, the end user perspective, but also the the um, developer perspective. I know, you know, I've noticed. I, I read the New York Times article about this that you, that you linked to um, on, on the site as a case study, and I'm wondering uh, where where developers and end users can can see this in the wild, and 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 what kind of the the uptake is on on all of this. Yeah, it's a great question and essential question. Um, I, I'll start by describing what you know ultimate success looks like for all of us. I would say even for society at large to have the transparency that the Content Authenticity Initiative and the C2PA standard enable to have that available to everybody everywhere. Um, now, when I say it's early days, you know, I'm saying that there are, there's a lot more work to do on the adoption side. Um, there's a gentleman on my team who has decades of experience as a conflict photojournalist himself. His name is Santiago Lyon. He, he speaks quite um, a lot and, and very well about the CAI and the C2PA. Um, Santiago also ran uh, the photo organization at the Associated Press for 15 years uh, in a VP role there. So he really understands the urgency and the, the necessity for information integrity when it comes to media, um, especially in this environment in which we live with social media, where things are shared with impunity because they might fit someone's worldview without really pausing to take a look at what something is and whether it's trustworthy or not. Um, so we have you know, made tremendous inroads in the kind of information ecosystem and generally in news. If you look at the roster of, I think we're up to 800 plus members of the CAI, this large community, um, sort of centered around open source and conversations about provenance and its applications. Um, you'll see names like AP and Reuters um, and AFP camera manufacturers. Um, what you may not see yet is the kind of end user facing kind of last mile uh, social media sites and other kinds of sites where news can be shared from the BBC to um, media feeds and things like that. And, you know, all I can say about that is stay tuned. We're working on those. Um, and the ecosystem of, you know, smaller companies and startups, many of which you've heard of, many of which you haven't, um, is very rich and active. So um, we have a Discord channel. Uh, we have a membership that's very easy to be part of the CAI. You just go and give us your logo and some information about what you intend to do. And you can be party to all of our free events, um, get some support from the Adobe team on the open source side and their other benefits. Um, so I would say it's early, but we're seeing signs of like a really rich ecosystem. Uh, we're doing things pretty much right to my eye, Catherine, but I don't think that's why this is going to be successful. I think, again, that everybody in the orbit around misinformation and, and attribution for creators feels the same urgency that we do to figure out at least a foundational layer of trustworthiness to, you know, add to the Internet itself. Um, and that's why they're involved. And we're getting a lot of great feedback about the tools. Um, there are dozens of implementations underway with some of those big name partners and some of the lesser known companies as well. So we are beginning the journey, not we have not ended it yet. So I have a, a question about identity, which I think is hopefully an important one or maybe just a coincidental one. But first, I have to let everybody know that this episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the only open source cross-platform password manager that can be used at home, at work, or on the go, and is trusted by millions. With Bitwarden, you can securely store credentials across personal and business worlds. Every Bitwarden account begins with the creation of a personal vault. With Bitwarden's username generator, you can integrate with the following popular email forwarding services that are also open source. Simple login, Ananadi, Firefox Relay, and now Fastmail. That makes adding another layer of security and privacy easier than ever. When using Bitwarden to generate a new username, the option to create an email alias is presented with a subselection for choosing your preferred service. Enter the API key for your individual account. With the chosen service, select the desired options, and what's generated a new alias is instantly registered to your account. Using unique usernames, email addresses, and passwords for every account is a powerful method for increasing internet security and privacy and adds protection to logins in the face of data breaches and leaks. This feature is available on the Web Vault, 
desktop app and browser extensions with mobile planned for a future release. And for those customers that use Bitwarden to generate TOTP codes, they can access it more easily on a dedicated screen on their mobile app. Bitwarden is a must need for your business is fully customizable and adapts to your business needs. Use Bitwarden Send, a fully encrypted method to transmit sensitive information, whether text or files generate unique and secure passwords for every site with enterprise-grade security. That's GDPR, CCPA, HIPAA, and SOC 2 compliant. Their end-to-end encrypted vault helps mitigate phishing attacks. And Bitwarden has recently added even more enterprise capability by adding SCIM, or SCIM support, to make it even easier to provision and manage users. Their team's organization is $3 a month per user, share private data securely with coworkers across departments or the entire company. Enterprises can use Bitwarden's enterprise organization plan for $5 a month per user. Individuals can use their basic free account forever for an unlimited number of passwords or upgrade anytime to their premium account for less than $1 a month. The family organization option gives up to six users premium features for only $3.33 a month. At Twit, we're fans of password managers. Bitwarden is the only open source cross-platform password manager that can be used at home, on the go, or at work, and is trusted by millions of individuals, teams, and organizations worldwide. Get started with a free trial of a Teams or Enterprise plan, or get started for free across all devices as an individual user at bitwarden.com slash twit. That's bitwarden.com slash twit. Okay, so... um. I wanted to talk identity because we've had a lot of guests on the show and full disclosure, I'm involved with it too. So is my wife with the whole SSI um, self-sovereign identity, verifiable credentials approach to, to, um, to personal identity where you're not, you don't have an ID. You have something that says I have tickets to the game. I went to this school, you know, here's where to find my what, um, where it's minimum disclosure for constrained uses, Justifiable parties is a whole set of rules. And it seems to me this is very close to that. And I'm wondering what the overlap is. Um, if I, I hadn't thought about it before that, wow, data can be making a, a, a presentation of a verifiable credential that can be authenticated somehow. And that data could be, this is a real source. This is a real story. This is not, this is not BS here. I can trust this. And then you can unpack it with that little eye that you see in the corner of of a web page, so tell me, tell me more. But you're nodding, so I imagine there's a, there's a connection there. Yeah, uh, there's a connection. I mean, full disclosure, it's something that we talk about a lot in the standards organization, and it's not a solved problem. But you're totally right, Doc. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of overlap between you know general public key cryptography, the notion of uh, decentralized IDs, which was I think recently graduated to a W3C recommendation after some churn. Um, around focusing it yeah. on kind of uh, standard clear ways to, to create did resolution methods and things like that. Um, but verifiable credentials are super interesting. I mean, the topic is extremely germane to what we do with content authenticity, because as you said, you know, age old example, you shouldn't have to show your government issued ID to get into a bar. You need only prove that you're allowed to go into that bar or whatever. Um, so, and similarly with uh, sort of, disclosure and verifiable presentations, which of course are part of the VC spec. Um, I think, you know, we have a ways to go to make true SSI accessible to consumers. And I'd love to hear your opinion on that as well. I'm sure you're pretty close to it. Uh, <laughs> currently to get ready for that, we do use the DID document that is retrieved um, and VCs in the format of the C2PA metadata. So sealed into that chunk of CBOR, um, is a did and and various verifiable credentials representing some of the data you described. So we're on a road to get there. Um, you know, building an ecosystem around issuers and holders and verifiers specifically for disinfo and credentialing is a ways away. But you know, we we definitely want to. I should have mentioned up front, like you know, what we're doing with um, the CAI and the C2PA specifically intends as a guiding principle to invent the least required novel technology, right? We don't want to reinvent PKI. We don't want to invent new blockchains if that's not necessary. Um, And we certainly don't want to stick our noses in identity, which has a long history, um, a fraught history, but a history. 
so issues of reputation, identity, verifiable credentials, you know, we want to adopt the good work that's being done um, in many organizations, including the W3C. So there is overlap. Um, I think in the coming years, you will see self-sovereignty of private keys. So I don't need an organization to proxy for my identity. For example, in Photoshop, uh, currently, Adobe will effectively authenticate you using standard means. You can OAuth your Instagram account and connect various accounts. Again, I'm not using the word identity here because these are accounts, not identity. Um, and eventually, you know, other kinds of verifiable identity that might involve, uh, you know, physical verification, waving your hand in front of your face with a certificate issuer, holding up a government ID. So at least even if you don't trust me, Andy Parsons, you know that I am who I say I am, according to some third party KYC style customer. So all the things I just mentioned are, are part and parcel to, I think, the eventual broad adoption of DIDs and VCs. And we want to be ready for that when it's accessible to consumers so that I can be me or I can be Banksy. I can reveal only information that's necessary for you to verify uh, and frankly decide for yourself whether to trust an image or a video or a social media post. Wow. There's so much there. Um, there is. You were actually twisting my mind even as you're speaking about um, how to make all this identity stuff succeed. Um, uh, my first thought is you may be further ahead than the whole identity world is by working on 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 your stuff because you're talking about um, verifiably authentic data and verifiably authentic sources. That may be a lower hurdle than trying to get the whole world to start waving verifiable credentials in front of, in front of, you know, some relying party that has no idea what you're doing. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a, I mean, I, I think an issue there with, with the entire did identity world going to um, self sovereignty and all that stuff is that the norms are, are the, the flywheels of business as usual and of the norms that we've had predating the net you know, you carry a bunch of government issued IDs and other, you know, business issued IDs. We call them IDs. They're not IDs. They're just, they're documents, but they're in little rectangles that are plastic in our pockets. And we present those and we get into Costco or we get into a bar or some other thing. And that's, that's a, that's a norm that is very, very well established. How do you get past that? And I think the issue is UI. The issue is somebody has to invent the thing that mothers the necessity where you take one look at it and say, I have to have it. My, my example for that is the is the is the the smartphone. Smartphones were around for a long time before Apple figured a way to make it easy. And where you take one look at that and you said, "I had to have it." Um, I remember people saying, "Nobody's ever going to want a phone that doesn't have a keyboard on it." Well, guess what? Apple's phone didn't have a keyboard on it, but it had apps. You know, <laughs> and all of a yeah. sudden, we're living in that world, and we've been living in there ever since. It'll and somebody else may come up with something better. I don't know, but. Um, so let me twist this a little bit um, to um, going down the route of provenance. I, I think the high hope here is that every website that has a stake in, um, in reputation is going to want that little eye in the corner of the, of the web page, of every web page that's kind of like an RSS we used to be, and I'd like to see the RSS a uh, symbol to go back on there because I think RSS is a wonderful thing. And I'd love to have Dave Weiner on the show later because he's doing great stuff there. But um, we need to have that there, you know, because then you'll know, even if it's not quite real, you can track it down. You can see it, and it'd be easier for, for everybody. I also have another thought, which is, and this is really off base, but I think it's an interesting one. Um, in, in my own project that started at the Berkman Center at Harvard a long time ago, we came up with an idea called Emancipay. Emancipay. The idea with Emancipay is you can throw money at anybody you want for whatever you want. Um, and so, for example, um, at, 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 at a whim, or you can program it in. I just have it automatically. I'll record everything that I'm, I'll have my own record of everything that I've listened to and I've watched. Then I can, I can voluntarily throw money back at it in a way that gets escrowed at some trustable place. But it cascade, I can cascade it down through sources. So, for example, with reporting, I can say, boy, I really like that. Andy had that. And then his sources were this or this or this. Or with music, because I know you play the sax, let's say I like that piece of music and you're on that and I want the band paid, right? Or I want the composer paid. 
and I can put that into there. And that's an idea that's been laying around for 17 years and nobody's adopted it. But I think there may be a way to do it through this, the schema, the ontology. I'm not sure what the right word for it is, for what you're, what you're scaffolding up there. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about all that. It's a lot. It is a lot. How much time do we have? We have another two hours. It's like, <laughs> we have about 20 I mean, minutes away. One, one, you know, one more ad in there. So <laughs> Back at you, Doc, because now you're twisting my mind, and there's a lot, and I'm going to miss some of it because, you know, gears are turning. So first of all, I want to back up to a critical point. I couldn't agree more that the barrier for adoption of SSI and SANE ID identity systems is UX, like, like 100%. <laughs> User experience is... It has a long way to go, to put it mildly. And I think, you know, regardless of how you feel about the NFT or the cryptocurrency ecosystem, which are separate things, um, or the involvement of blockchain as a tool to enable other kinds of, you know, uh, reasonable and justified decentralization, without good UX to access these things and actually exercise your sovereignty over your private keys, um, and also a baseline understanding of what these things are, I think we're we're doomed. Now, we're not actually doomed because there are good companies working on these problems, but it has a long, long way to go. Um, you know, witness the simple idea that many NFT collectors, and as you would imagine, we on the Content Authenticity Initiative talk to people in the art world who are making the transition to digital art and exploring ways to be compensated and uh, have proper attribution um, in all sorts of new kind of uh, types of mixed media art. Um, you know, some of them believe, as they've been led to believe, that the NFTs are in the wallet you know, like the, the information is in the computer, you know, what a wallet is, as you both know, is is a way to steward private keys and unlock things on blockchains that live in a decentralized way all over the place. Um, but, you know, relatively simple ideas like that, I think, um, number one, I don't think consumers necessarily need to or do care about decentralization until it comes to, you know, data stewardship and big companies owning your data. And we could spend one of our many more hours just on that. Um but again, for, for utility and usage and adoption, it 100% comes down to UX. And that is, in fact, why uh, Photoshop takes um, some, it makes some assumptions about the way people want to use this. Because if you want to use content credentials, which is the, um, the name we're using for the more creator accessible um, ideas behind the C2PA standard, if you want to add content credentials, it needs to be as easy as possible. And moreover, it, it needs to not impede your standard workflow. It can't slow you down in any way. You need to understand what you're doing in a responsible way so you don't accidentally share identity in a public way, but it needs to be as seamless as possible. And I think that's where, you know, wallet uh, software and cold and hot storage and things like that that will enable um, DID lack. So there's a long way to go there, number one. Um, uh, you know, Providence in general, um, I agree with you also, like it, it for this to be successful, it does need to be ubiquitous, like you should come to expect it. Um, and that's why we started with uh, engaging with news organizations and creators of content and uh, Adobe competitors and Adobe tools that we make so that kind of the the supply chain, starting with cameras, uh, has provenance built into it so that at the other end on social media and other places, you can expose it as soon as there's a critical mass. And there, there will be a critical mass in the next couple of years. Um, so... And I think it really matters most because this data travels with the asset no matter where it goes. You could argue, and you'd be right to say, you know, does the BBC or the New York Times really need to prove the provenance of an asset on its own web properties where you already have a, an SSL certificate and a lock in your browser? Um, no, probably not. If you trust the BBC's sourcing methods and you trust the BBC as a, a conduit of information, um, then that's good enough. But as soon as that asset leaves the BBC... And an asset here could be um, a contextualized image or video that has text with it. It could be just a video that ends up on Twitter. You know, then you really need to understand its provenance, where it came from. And at the bare minimum, to be able to cryptographically prove that something that purports to come from the BBC actually did come from the BBC. So that's kind of the low-hanging fruit for the ubiquity you described and having that icon everywhere where it matters. Um the uh, and and there was so much more in what you said. I forgot. What, I'm not even sure where to go next. But um, those are oh some my, it, it, it is too much. There. And and I think actually we should probably talk later anyway. <laughs> Definitely, <laughs> a few seconds after the show. But um, w w one question I have is like, what's what's the path to success in this exactly, or is you're imagining it out? Because I I mean I would love to see that little eye on on as many sites as possible that are that, that traffic in in trustworthy information and kind of a wheat and chaff 
um, threshing that will happen by nature once that comes up. And I think you've got a fairly bounded set of concerns here. You know, you're you're not trying to, like the problem with SSI is trying to take on the entire identity world. It's a tough one. But you've got something much more bounded. Um, what's it going to take? Is it going to take the, the New York Times and and the Wall Street Journal joining the CAI or, or what? Maybe they already have, and I don't even know it. They have, they have indeed. Um, oh, yeah, good. so there's there's wow. a, a broad spectrum of participants in the CAI. Um, you both should join as well. It's open to individuals and organizations, really anybody interested oh. in the space um, who has something to offer or learn. And I think that's pretty much everybody everywhere. Um, but I think, you know, the path to success, uh, we're well past the starting line, as I said earlier. It um, By design, it started with gaining a consensus across industry, human rights. I should note here that, um, you know, this is not intended, nor is it a bunch of big tech companies getting together to be the arbiter of trust. Um, the CAI at its fundamental kind of founding ideology is about transparency, not making judgment calls. So, you know, we would prefer that any platform or app not make judgment calls about its media um, in general, this is a broad generalization, but instead push the transparency all the way to the consumer. And that's what that eye icon is for. The eye doesn't indicate that something is trustworthy. It's not like a Twitter blue check mark saying, you know, Andy is verified. Um, it's simply a way to say there's more here. Should you wish to learn about what this actually is, there's more here. And if you're compelled to explore it, it's right there, a click or a tap away um, or, you know, a retina implant away, whatever it's going to be in the metaverse. Um, but, you know, I think moreover, the uh, accessibility, which is also a guiding principle, also has two facets. It's number one, accessibility to engineers, developers, product people, designers who want to explore this and implement it. Um, but also accessibility geographically. And that means low cost um, implementation on low cost devices, on apps that can run on, you know, not the latest generation of iPhone 25s. Um, and that's something that we focus a lot of this kind of early ecosystem attention on is to make sure that this code that we're writing can run on those constrained devices. But there are other kinds of constrained devices that are newer, that are in the hands of photojournalists. They might be mirrorless cameras. They might be, um, you know, the number of manufacturers that are, outfitting AFP and uh, the AP and writers and others with, you know, the instruments to capture uh, fact and tell the truth and tell stories about the, about what the, what's going on in the world. So when enable them as well, so that's all on the supply side. So as we think about success, there's like making sure we have plenty of supply of provenance enabled media. Then there's all the things that exist in news production pipelines and creative pipelines and agencies and, you know, digital experience platforms that touch that media, change it, carry through the metadata. So we need to make sure that um, at a minimum, they don't alter it in a way that isn't C2PA compliant, that doesn't have the data uh, continue to be bound to the bytes of the asset. Um, that's that's the first thing. And then the second thing is to embrace um, all of the platforms, um, websites, mobile apps, operating systems and eventually browsers, right? We want to push this down to the metal, so to speak, not have every mobile app in the world need to implement CI open source from Adobe, but rather to have these facilities in the mobile OS itself, uh, because that's more secure. It can take advantage of hardware security um, and it can be available if you want it. It's right there. And it's, it's the same code baked into operating systems. So that's all to say we have a long way to go, but su success looks like um, penetration across all those facets so that um, makers of applications and purveyors of information, uh, be it video, photos, audio, 3D in the metaverse, whatever that is, um, have access to it and begin to use it. We have good early signals that consumers want this um, and that they do understand that uh, this is about transparency, not about judgment and you know portraying you can trust these entities, you can't trust these entities. Um, and there's a lot more work that has to go in there. So you know, on that last front, what we are doing is uh, spinning up a lot of user research, both at Adobe and in the C2PA, um, funded by C2PA members, funded by Adobe to understand how to get this message across to consumers, because it's not a straightforward message. And frankly, it's not one that we've needed before, which is to say, there's an icon here, there's a way to explore, there's a way to understand what this is, rather than having interventions that say things like, you haven't even read this article, Andy, are you sure you want to share it? Instead, if I do share it, even on messaging systems and end-to-end and -end encrypted messaging systems, I'm sharing it with the context. 
from which it came. And that, that's critically important and not straightforward to understand. So um, in service of that, we are also making efforts around um, I would a new kind of media literacy, really, which is um, be skeptical of everything. You know, there was a time when phishing attacks were very poorly understood by consumers. Um, you mentioned that earlier. And now, you know, many people, if not most, across all age groups, would think twice or not even think about opening something that looks like it came from Citibank but has a weird URL or, you know, a broken certificate in a browser. So we want to get the the media literacy level of uh, our children, our grandchildren, our grandparents, our parents um, across geographies to uh, be ready to embrace this when it becomes ubiquitous. So there's a lot to do. Um, There are a lot of people involved and very interested parties involved, including human rights concerns, we want to make sure that we safeguard, uh, you know, founding principles like privacy and safety. Wow, boy, <laughs> <We're>, <laughs> I'm typing furiously in our back channel, and I know. <laughs> Catherine too, because there's so much we can unpack here, and we're running short on time, which means I have to tell everybody that this episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by Compiler, an original podcast from Red Hat devoted to simplifying tech topics and providing insight for a new generation of IT professionals. It's hosted by Angela Andrews and Brent Simino. Compiler closes the gap between those who are new to technology and those behind the inventions and services shaping our world. Compiler brings together stories and perspectives from the industry and simplifies its language, culture, and movements in a way that's fun, informative, and guilt-free. Do you want to stay on top of tech without the time spend and original podcast from Red Hat? Compiler presents perspectives, topics, and insights from the tech industry free from jargon and judgment. They want to discover where technology is headed beyond the headlines and create a place for new IT professionals to learn, grow, and thrive. Compiler helps people break through barriers and challenges, turning code into community at all levels of the enterprise. In one episode, they cover the great stack debate. The software stack is like an onion or a sheet cake or a lasagna, or is it? It's often described as having layers that sit on top of each other, but the reality is much more complicated. And learning about it can help any tech career. The Great Stack Debate is the first episode of Compiler's series on the software stack. They explore each layer of the stack and what it's like to work on them and how they come together into a whole application. Another episode covers, are we as productive as we think? The pressure to balance productivity with passion projects, personal responsibilities, or just with the need to rest is challenging. Their team spoke with tech-minded creators in the productivity space on how to achieve full focus and how to make time for work, relaxation, and creativity. By the way, I've checked out the one in the Great Stack Debate. It's really good. It, the stack is not just a stack. It's more like, uh, um, I don't know, Tetris or something like that. We need a different we need a different metaphor for it. Learn more about Compiler at red.ht slash twit. Listen to Compiler in your favorite podcast player. We'll also include a link in the show notes. My thanks to Compiler for their support. So Catherine, you had one queued up. I, I do. Yeah. You know, so, so here, you know, so here's what's particularly interesting to me. This seems to me to be a te- at least a partial solution, a partial technical solution to what is a cultural problem. And while you mentioned earlier that you don't consider it to have the same meaning as for example, a Twitter check Mark, you're not necessarily verifying, um, something in the same way, it seems to me that you still need to build trust with end users, ultimately, especially non-technical people who may have zero understanding of, you know, what cryptographic signing is and any of these things. Um, so I'm wondering how you approach educating uh, consumers, or if that's even, if you see that as your role. I'm curious to know, you know, how you envision getting buy-in from the rest of the world you know, to 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 trust that they can rely on this this uh, evidence of provenance for for various media. I like it, Catherine. It's probably the hardest problem or or problem area that we face in adoption. Hold on, hold, um, on, hold on, I'm gonna cut in. Your mic was cut on my side. I'm I'm gonna have you start again. Okay. Yes, that's Andy. Andy, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Thank you. Yep. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so, Catherine, you're pointing out, you know, one of the greatest challenges we face as we move ahead. So, first of all, it's it's certainly not only Adobe uh, who is responsible ultimately for educating consumers and the public and fact checkers. That's a 
that's a responsibility that should and I think is beginning to be spread across many companies and nonprofit interests and universities and others that we, we talk with frequently. Um, and I also think you're 100% correct to point out that this sort of you know, sociological implications of digital provenance and its ubiquity, um, I would say even geopolitical implications, um, when you have obviously you know, state-funded actors who will be involved in some way, uh, good or bad, in these um, ecosystems that develop, those are those are really gnarly problems. Um, and I would be, you know, uh, just a complete fool to tell you that we have that all figured out. I think this is an emergent ecosystem. Um, trust is important. I just want to not um, gloss over that too quickly here. So when I talk about the the blue check mark, you know, that's something that Twitter might be communicating to its constituents, saying. You know, we believe Andy is who he says he is, and you can trust that, too, because you trust us. Um, it is important to trust the signer of C2PA metadata in these manifests, and the trust is rooted there. Um, doesn't mean you need to know the person or the agency or the uh, organization, but it does mean you need to trust the system, which I think is what you're pointing out. Um, and that's why it's important that all of this be open. None of it can be closed. None of it can be proprietary. It can't be bound up in IP with any company or companies, and it can't cost anything. So, you know... Um, you know, trust the force, read the source or whatever the, the saying is in open source. Like that's a, that's an important part of the solution. Now, granted, it doesn't necessarily touch consumers, but, um, you know, neither did the development of the lock in browsers. There was a time that I think maybe we're all old enough to remember. I certainly am, um, where there were more than two browsers and more than two, you know, underlining browser, uh, SDKs that everybody used. And over time, um, thanks again to Mozilla, uh, there became a ubiquity, ubiquity of the lock, a certificate authority ecosystem so that, you know, there was the cab forum invented so that we could trust the certificates that ship with browsers. That's all technical, you know, uh, esoterica, but ultimately it resulted in people being able to trust that at least the, the vehicle for them sending their social security numbers and financial instruments back and forth to websites was secure by some definition of secure. And we want to do the same thing. So it's a, a giant nut to crack uh, to do this across geographies, economies, and different kinds of individuals. But success, back to Doc's earlier question, does look like ubiquity and understanding. Um, and it does require all those parties to be fully plugged in, including universities. You know, one of the things we are doing at Adobe is funding the development of curricular materials um, that we will give away, uh, you know, addressing the broad topic of media literacy, but kind of um, decorated with a very specific concept of media provenance, which we think is going forward, one of the most critical skills for consumers to have. Wow. Um, I'm, I'm looking at, at how little time we have left, and I'm wondering, I, I want to touch something that's a little bit of a third rail. Um, it, it may not be for you because you may be isolated from it, which is, the authenticity of the way a website appears when in fact it has a mountain of cookies coming in to your browser. Some of those are from Adobe and, and then your personal information gets auctioned off somewhere. And I'm wondering whether that figures at all into your, into your work, um, you know, or, or not, because it's, I have not been able to get a, a single reporter to touch that third rail because there's too much money in it. And, but I'm kind of famous for being uh, an annoyance on that topic. So I'm wondering if you're willing to touch that or not, or maybe you're so isolated from it, it doesn't matter. Um, I think I think I'm isolated from it, and the CIA is isolated from it. I will say that in the specification and in some you know um, sometimes very vigorous conversations in the standards development organization, we do talk a lot about um, kind of phone home kind of scenarios where it's like you know can some provenance live on the server. And we've taken very careful actions to make sure that none of that is required. There's no scenario here where any server or company or cloud-based system needs to touch any of your data, of course, including your identity. Um, now, that doesn't mean that, you know, someone couldn't build something on top of the open standard that is effectively DRM, that does all sorts of, you know, behavior tracking. Um, we neither encourage that nor preclude its possibility. Um, and again, this is outside of Adobe, kind of outside of the CAI in particular, but Certainly you can, we want to make sure, and I think we've done a pretty good job on the standard side to make sure that a perfectly viable provenance system can be built on these specifications using our open source code that doesn't require any cookies or trafficking with servers whatsoever. So 
that is a, a hallmark. It's absolutely required, um, you know, given the ubiquity that we talked about earlier, you know, having every consumer everywhere, every piece of media, having provenance uh, manifest cryptographically attached. We want to make sure that this doesn't cannot, we want to make sure this cannot become a massive surveillance system for, for states or others. Wow. We are just about out of time. And I think that you've introduced so many incredibly important topics here. Um, provenance and authenticity. I mean, what could be, a, what could be bigger issues? <laughs> you know? yeah. Speaking as an old reporter here, then where did you get that information? <laughs> you know, right, exactly. and can you trust it? And, and you're talking about context as well. And here in the physical world, we know what that is, you know, it's very simple and most of it's visible and, but online, not only is it not, um, uh, it's too easily gamed at, at, at this stage. Um, so, um, we're just about out of time. We always end with, with several questions, um, uh, or basically two basic, well, the first one, is there anything we haven't asked that, um, you'd like us to have asked and you could answer quickly? Well, we didn't talk about barbecue doc. Maybe if you'll ever have, oh, wow. back, we, can oh, boy. we can touch on that. <laughs> um, but no, I think we've, we've covered, you know, to some good degree of depth, uh, <laughs> all the topics and there's so much more to talk about, but. Well, I spent 20 time. years in North Carolina and uh, I got a lot to say about that. And then, Catherine's from Texas, and, yeah, which is probably a more legitimate claim to, to, <laughs> to barbecue. So we should, we should talk about that. And actually, we, we say this to almost everybody. We definitely should have you back. And it has been great having you here. Oh, before we go, what are your favorite text editor and scripting language? If you have those, that may not be part of your yeah, job. But I, I obviously answer Python for scripting. Um, and, you know, I, nothing, nothing goes shattering here, but I am a, a VS Code convert. Uh, from Vim. Interesting. Oh, excellent! Very good, very good in the in, in in the VI family. So, thanks again, man. This has been great having you on the show. Thank you both. It's been a pleasure, yeah. and I do hope to come yeah. back this is and talk further. Yeah, great. fantastic. So, Catherine, wow. <laughs> I, that I think was so good. I'm notes. so glad I got to be a yeah a part of this. I was just listening and you know absorbing and learning. I think so much from this that. Um, yeah, I'm glad I got to do this one. Yeah, I think there uh, we have more. I think there's more in the back channel here between us I, I, on the on the on the or, or the the back to twit back channel. Um, I didn't check that that often because we were too busy with this, and I know um, you had too many irrelevant thoughts about you know PowerPoint and everything, Photoshop and stuff like that. Um, I think if I think if he succeeds, it does change the world. I mean, because what do we want? We want to know if this stuff is real or not, right? I mean, that's a a simple enough thing. And, yeah, it's and an ambitious goal, from. but incredibly valuable. It's um, yeah, you know. And I think what so coming from my perspective, um, so if I <laughs> just quickly plug, I, I have a new job now. I'm an open source evangelist yeah, yeah. at Intel. Oh, and, we did and do I, I'm plugs. thinking. I know. I, yeah, yeah. we didn't do that, but oh, I guess I just did. But I, I, I spend a lot of time these days thinking about uh, open source security, uh, software supply chains, and and having this conversation really kind of drives home that I feel like the phrase of the decade of this decade is already supply chain. Like that is every. It is so important in in everything that we do is is provenance and and tracing things authentically. I think it's. Um, yeah, it's a conversation I hope to be more a part of, and I'm incredibly interested. Well, to complete the plug, in case people missed it or are not reading your lower third, uh, you're working ah, for yes, Intel. Ah, yes, there we go. Oh, yes, visit, open. visit Intel. Me Tell us about that. Oh, sure. So, yeah, Intel is heavily involved in, in open source software. Uh, and I, being new to Intel, I think uh, hopefully you will see a lot more from me at open.intel.com and my colleagues. And yeah, we're, we're there to to share with the world uh, our open source activities. And I'm remembering. So you follow know, this space. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, back when open source is first coined is or robbed from the military as a word by the geeks. They robbed it. They took it away, which is great. Made the world talk about it. Um, it was in 1998, now 24 years ago. Um Getting big companies that, uh, that weren't open source already, you know, like a red hat. Um to care about open source is a real chore. And now Intel has it, Adobe has it, lots of big companies have it. It's a really cool thing. So I'm glad for that. So th thanks for being on the show. 
Yeah, thank you for having me. This was a <laughs> we'll see you on our see you on our own show. Incredibly lucky to have been part of this one. Yeah, I'll see see you tomorrow on that's our own the show. other plug. <laughs> Catherine and I have our own show too, so that's a reality two cast. So great, great having you, everybody. Um, uh, I'm Doc Searles. I haven't looked at who we have next week. I should look real quickly. Oh my gosh, I always mean to do that, and then I don't. Let me check the schedule. Oh wow, yeah, Jonathan Corbett of of uh, LWN Linux Weekly News. He's oh, stayed on the case forever. A very important guy in the Linux world. So that's Jonathan Corbett. That's coming up next next week. Be there. I'm Doc Searles. This is Floss Weekly. See you then. Hey, we should talk Linux. It's the operating system that runs the internet, a bunch of game consoles, cell phones, and maybe even the machine on your desk. But you already knew all that. What you may not know is that TwitNow is a show dedicated to it, the Untitled Linux Show. Whether you're a Linux pro, a burgeoning sysadmin, or just curious what the big deal is, you should join us on the Club Twit Discord every Saturday afternoon for news, analysis, and tips to sharpen your Linux skills. And then make sure you subscribe to the Club Twit exclusive Untitled Linux Show. Wait, you're not a Club Twit member yet? Well, go to twit.tv slash club twit and sign up. Hope to see you there.